not a guy with a million regrets. I do try to learn from life, and I think I've gotten better at interviewing people. But one thing that still nags me is that as soon as I hang up the phone with somebody I've been talking to, usually within a few minutes, I come up with a lot of great questions that I didn't ask them. Including uh, where the song Brandy, Your Fine Girl, really came from. I didn't get it. You know, like, was his family longshoremen? Where does where does this t- tale of the sea come from a kid from Brooklyn? Anyways, we'll never know. Uh, today we're talking to Elliot Lurie. Don't forget, folks, that the uh, WFMU fundraiser starts in just a few weeks. And I urge you to go to WFMU.org slash superhits and check out the information about the Super Hits of the 70s uh, CD that I've cooked up for this year. Spent a whole year working on it. There are 21 amazing artists who are covering songs of the 1970s just for WFMU. These recordings uh, will be released nowhere else, at least for a while. They're exclusive to us. They were made just for us. And they're yours as a thank you if you pledge to our fun drive that starts March 3rd. And it includes a cover of Brandy, You're a Fine Girl, from Sarah Borges. A uh, great cover of that song. Great to hear a female singing that song. Uh, check out the... There's just some amazingly huge acts on the uh, on the rat roster. I won't mention any. I don't want to let the monkey out of the cat out of the bag. But check WFMU.org slash superhits. You'll see the whole list, including an amazing video that, that has little bits of every single song. Uh, also, I want to let you know the Cactus Blossoms coming back to the show for a live performance, uh, this time recorded at uh, a studio called The Magic Door in uh, Montclair, New Jersey, because of some pipe bursting at WFMU. Our studio wasn't available, so that's going to be great. Uh, meanwhile, me and Elliot Lurie, nice guy, sense of humor, and uh, after we were off the air, I said to him, you know, you sound so normal. Seems like he, one of the normalist guests I've spoken to, so that's always good. Uh, that's it. Hopefully you'll pledge to the, the fundraiser. Enjoy this conversation with Elliot Laurie. Thanks. There is uh, Jimmy Loves Marianne. I just love that song, love every version of it, but uh, The Looking Glasses is is very special to me. And the the writer and lead singer, Elliot Lurie, joins me on the telephone. Good morning. How are you? Good. How are you doing, Michael? I'm good. Am I right that you are from Brooklyn? Originally from Brooklyn, New York, yes. Were your folks musical? Was there radio? What what was your first kind of spark musically? My parents weren't musical, but uh, there was always a radio on in the house. I even remember when I was really small. Uh, they used to put on uh, the WNEW AM, uh, and I'd fall asleep to uh, to the standards from Sinatra and 
uh, Ella Fitzgerald and things like that. I think it was called, uh, what was that famous show? William B. Williams had it on... Uh, Make-Believe Ballroom. Make-Believe Ballroom, exactly. I used to fall asleep to that. And I was one of those typical kids who had the transistor radio under his pillow, staying up uh, past bedtime, uh, listening to the hits. So you're kind of the perfect age to eventually have your mind completely blown by the Beatles. Is that what happened to you? Absolutely. I mean, I, I was playing before that in bands, uh, you know, in, in high school and uh, even in junior high school. But obviously, uh, they changed everything because uh, they made it clear that uh, four guys could write and sing their own songs and uh, they could sound just great. So it, it did change everything. So before that, that's interesting. So you're 12, 13, you're a young teenager. Were you guys, was this just cover bands at that time? Yeah, it was cover bands, although uh, I remember, you know, as early as when I was, uh, I think, 14 years old, a band I was in uh, went into a studio to cut some demos of original stuff that we had recorded that was taken around through a couple of record companies. So I was dabbling in, in writing early on, but uh, the, the Beatles changed, changed the whole thrust of that. So what was what were these sort of pre-Beatles Elliot Lurie songs like? <laughs> Very rough and young. <laughs> uh, did you go out and see you know bands coming through those kind of big DJ shows and stuff like that that were always happening? We definitely did. I mean, I can remember very well my friends and I standing in line at the Brooklyn Fox Theater to see the Murray the K reviews uh, with all those fabulous artists that he would have. We would always do that. And uh, one of the great things was uh, when I was 18, uh, I was uh, out of college for a semester and working as a sideman in New York City. And I hooked up with a guy who was a folk singer named Steve Barron. But Steve had a, a second gig as a member of a comedy troupe called the Hardly Worthed Players. And the Hardly Worthed Players had a number one record in New York, a novelty record, the song Wild Thing, with an imitation of Bobby Kennedy's voice doing it. And it became, it became a big local novelty hit in New York just at the time that Murray McKay was having a show. And it was his first transition show where he, he realized the music was changing. So in addition to people like Wilson Pickett and, and Mitch Ryder, the Detroit Wheels, he also had in their first American appearances, I believe, The Who and Cream. The Harley Worthen players were on that show. So as a result, I got to share a dressing room for an entire week with The Who jam with uh, Clapton and Al Cooper and uh, and Wilson Pickett after the shows. So uh, it kind of came full circle for me there. I love Now that is amazing. So how old were you when that happened? 18? 18, yeah. Well, that is absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, uh, any I mean any debauchery, any craziness from, you know, Keith Moon? They were wild. Uh, Keith and, and Peter Townsend were wild and and Roger Dolce was a uh, was a perfectly restrained English gentleman. Uh, it, it, it was it was fun and and it was wild. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, so eventually, you get from Brooklyn to Rutgers University, where you're studying, I believe, engineering. But you're in a you're still in a band. So basically, it seems like from 12 years old, you've been always in a band. So tell me what the music scene was like when you were just getting to Rutgers, because uh, I know you guys played sort of you know, a lot of the East Coast scene and frat houses and stuff like that. What was the, what year was this and what was the music scene like at that time for a band like yours? Well, I got to Rutgers, uh, I guess, in 1967. And in 1968, I think we formed the first version of, of Looking Glass there. 
And we were a straight cover band. We played, uh, you know, five, six sets a night. We would play fraternity parties. We would play bars. Uh, and it was a cover band. Uh, and as time went on, we, we got a bit of a following of, of kids who would follow us to whatever fraternity we were playing at or whatever bar we were playing at. We started writing some of our own material. And as we got more of a following, we, we got away with it. So we'd kind of sneak in one or two original songs into each set. And uh, that's how we built the repertoire. Gotcha. So what did it, what do you get paid to play to Fred House in 1968? Oh, geez, I don't, I, I don't recall, but it, it couldn't have been much more than 30, 40 bucks a band. <laughs> that's not bad. So did you graduate from Rutgers? I did. Okay, congratulations. So you guys rented a house out in Hunterton in the northwest part of New Jersey to just kind of concentrate on being a band. It sounds very late 60s. Did you guys just spend all day writing, working on music? Yeah, it was really a wonderful time. What we did was, you know, we were all middle class, lower middle class kids in the band. And, uh, you know, when we graduated and, and uh, you know, told, told our folks that uh, we wanted to try to make it in the music world, you know, they were, they were, they were appalled. <laughs> so uh, we, we kind of, uh, we kind of talked them into, we said, uh, you know, we're going to take a year to try this. And if nothing happens with it, then we'll go get real jobs and, and forget about it. But, but we're, we're, we've got a pretty good following. So we're going to take a year. So we rented an old farmhouse out in Huntington County, beautiful area. It had about 80 acres of land around it. And I think we paid $240 a month to rent it. And what we did was we set all the gear up in the living room downstairs. There was also an upright piano down there. And there were bedrooms upstairs where we lived. Three of the four guys lived there. And uh, we would play gigs, you know, on weekends or whenever they would come up to make the rent. And the rest of the time, we had the gear set up in the living room, and we would write, and we would rehearse, and we would record demos on an old TAC 4-track uh, and try to put something together to get us a record deal. So the story says one night you're spotted by Clive Davis. I mean, this is obviously within that first year, right? Uh, is that really what happened? Clive Davis just heard about you, came down, and said, okay, I'm signing you? Well, no. By that point, we had gotten a manager. We got that manager through our uh reputation in New Jersey. He uh, brought our demo tapes up to Clive Davis. Clive was interested enough to set up a showcase for the band to play live. We played at the Cafe Gogo down in Greenwich Village. Uh, he came down and saw us there, and based on the combination of the tapes and the performance, he signed us to Epic Records. Uh, so Clive Davis signs you guys. You wind up on Epic, which is a subsidiary of Columbia. And and this part really interests me. You tried to record first with Steve Cropper in Memphis, right? And that it didn't quite work out. Tell me what that experience was like and why it didn't work out. Well, Clive suggested that we go to Memphis and have Steve Cropper produce us. And we were real excited about that. We all, you know, admired Steve Cropper greatly as a writer, producer, musician. And we were very excited and enthused to do it. We went down to Memphis. <laughs> and as soon as we got down to Memphis on the first night we were recording, uh, race riots broke out in Memphis. So for the rest of the week that we were there, we could only go to the Holiday Inn and to the recording studio. There were curfews and, and uh, people were told to get off the street. So it was a little tense uh, around Memphis. But in the studio, it all went great. We did four sides with Steve. We were very happy with the way they came out. And we liked him very much. Uh, but when we brought the tracks back to New York and we sat with Mike, our manager, and with Clive and listened to them, I think the, uh, the opinion was that they were very well recorded and performed, but they really sounded like 
a good bar band and they didn't sound like hit records. And we, we all wanted a hit record. So uh, we decided to move on to another, uh, another plan. So you try with this guy, Bob Lifton, who was sort of a industry vet, and voila, uh, the first album gets done. Was it apparent that this record would contain hits? That, Bob Lifton was an engineer who owned the studio on West 56th Street, and we had also been put with a staff producer named Sandy Lindsay from Epic Records. And Sandy really, <laughs> he kind of got screwed because Sandy really contributed a lot to the record. Although he didn't produce the final record, uh, he helped us with the arrangement and with the rhythm track. And uh, he was helpful, but eventually not exactly right for us either. So we wound up finishing the album with Bob Lipton at his studio in New York. And we didn't, we didn't know it was going to be a hit when we were done with it, but, but you know, Brandy was always Clive's favorite song, and he thought it could be a hit record if it was produced correctly. But sitting there listening to it the day you mixed it down, you guys didn't sort of, there was no high-fiving, and, uh, you know, you just didn't know? Well, you know, we, we were pretty happy with most of the stuff when we finished it, and, uh, you know, Brandy was a little softer and poppier, certainly than what the band sounded like live. I mean, we were basically a, a four-piece band, uh, you know, and Brandy's got the horn section, and it's got all the vocal overdubs, so uh, uh, it was a little poppier than, than what we sounded like. But we were happy with it, and, we, you know, we we had recorded by that side so many times and mixed it so many times. You know, we were already a little sick of it, to tell you the truth, but, but we were happy with the way it came out. That's very interesting. Well, that's I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, because when you listen to the album as a whole, not that Brandy is atypical, but it's not, you know, 10 songs that all sound like Brandy. It's it's a much more of a, a rock and roll band, you know, with with uh, different writers and different sounds and a, a lot of kind of feels that fe- folks would recognize and a lot of more upbeat stuff. Yeah, you know, we, we, were, we were influenced by all the things that were around then. And again, we we're only a four-piece band and we had really cut our teeth playing bars and doing cover songs. So, uh, you know, but we wanted to hit a record and, and we knew that that that, that was, you know, the, the production that we did on Brandy was probably the most likely path towards that. But, you know, I always thought that part of the reason that the band didn't succeed over the long run was because there was no really uh, coherent overall uh, sound or image to the band. We had another writer and singer in the band uh, named Pete Sweetle. I liked his stuff very much. I liked playing on it, but he had a totally different kind of voice than mine. His was kind of a high tenor. His material was a little more rock-oriented and sometimes a little bit more folk-oriented, while mine was more pop-oriented. So, you know, as a band, it was a little bit all over the map. And I think you get that from, uh, certainly from the first Looking Glass album and, and, and still from the second one as well. Yeah, I, I completely agree. So, Brandy, uh, You're a Fine Girl, to include the parenthetical, became a number one hit, but it wasn't the first single from the album. How did it become a single? It was not the first single. And in fact, it would not have become a single if not for a promotion man in Washington, D.C., guy named Robert Mandel, brought an acetate of the album over to WPGC, which was the top 40 station in Washington, D.C., and there was a program director this jacket down in Harv Moore at the time. And Robert said to Harv, you know, he was promoting Epic Records, and he, he brought the aspect. He said to Harv, have you heard this looking glass thing? And we had had another song from the album, and it's a single, and it wasn't doing a thing. 
And Hawk said, uh, yeah, I've heard them. I said, you know, I've played the single every once in a while, but nothing's happening with it at all. And Robert said, well, you should really hear some other stuff from the album. They're really good. And off the acetate, he played them Brandy. And Hawk said, I like that one. And he put it on the air right off the acetate. And the reaction to that was incredible. You know, as they used to say, the, the phones lit up like a Christmas tree and uh, the request lines were, were up and running. And there was no single of it at that time. But of course, once they got that reaction in a major market like uh, D.C., uh, Epic went to work. They pressed up the single. They promoted it around the country. And the rest is history. As they <laughs> well, it's become such a such part of the literal and figurative soundtrack of the 70s. I mean, it is in every movie and TV show that takes place in the 70s, just about. And it's one of those songs that when you recall the top 40 era of radio, and it was a real powerful time in radio because it was before there were stations for each taste. These were sort of stations that everybody listened to. So when a record became number one, like Brandy did, everybody was listening to it. And, um, and, and I think that, you know, that record is a perfect example of that top 40 sort of universal sound. And that's why that record is still such a timely, uh, you know, classic living record, uh, even now. So you, this, this record blew up. You became num a number one hit. Uh, you guys were on fire. Uh, did it, you know, blow your minds? Not, not too long ago, you guys were playing frat houses. Uh, it did. I mean, look, we, we were real excited and, uh, you know, we thought the sky was the limit. You know, like you say, we we were we were a bar band that uh, within you know about eight nine months of playing our last bar gig had a number one record, so it was pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, that's nuts. Uh, you, you know, you mentioned that uh, that you know other guys in the band wrote and stuff. Uh, did you guys all get along? Because sometimes what happens is uh, the guy who wrote the single become makes a lot more money than the rest of the guys, and the rest of the guys all want to kill him, even though you guys had sort of spent all this time together, you know, in the house and in bars and in station wagons and whatever. Uh, was that were you? Was it cool? This kind of instant success? Yeah, we actually got along quite well. And and don't forget that back in those days there was a thing called the B side. You know, so when you <laughs> released a forty-five RPM, there was an A side and a B side. And uh, on the record sales, the, the writer of the B-side makes just as much money as the writer of the A-side. So what we always did, to be fair, was whoever had the A-side, the other writer had the B-side. Fair enough. So he was making the same as you. Okay, that's, a, that's, that's smart, keeping, you know, killing each other to a minimum. Uh, well, did you guys play on great bills with other bands at that time? We played on, we, uh, it was very, very interesting because with the one single, we could sell out you know, large clubs, smaller halls, you know, six, 700 people, but, but no more than that. So we would uh, have tours booked for us that would sort of alternate between us headlining clubs or, or small halls and then opening for much bigger acts at larger halls. And, and sometimes the pairings were good. I mean, we opened for Santana. We opened for, uh, oh, uh, you know, it was a lot of good, the Jeff Beck, it uh, was not a bad, uh, not a bad pairing. Uh, we even opened for Steely Dan, but but sometimes the pairings didn't make a lot of sense. I remember once we opened for Alice Cooper, and it was during the time where Alice uh, had the guillotine in his show, and it was you know a whole the whole theatrical thing, and you know the place was packed with Alice fans, 
And, you know, they didn't want to hear Brandy or a fine girl. <laughs> so we came up on, we got to get her on stage and people were booing us and yelling us get off the stage. So, so tour, touring was interesting in, in, in that way. But, you know, some of the pairings were great and uh, and went quite well. There's one particular clip of you actually playing Brandy live, or at least you're singing it live on TV. And uh, the look of the band is not exactly what I expected, but it's very fitting <laughs> with the time. But you guys look pure 1972 i mean like where did you specifically where did you buy your clothes uh, we we did not have a stylist or, or anything like that i mean we each had our favorite stores we would get our clothes i know i used to shop down in the east village quite a lot i think that ridiculous uh shirt that i'm wearing in that video <laughs> that you're referring to was probably bought at a little boutique in the east village <laughs> you know, in, in fact, at one point when we were doing the second album, we were in Clyde's office talking about, you know, the image of the band. And he says, uh, he said, you guys have an image or images, but I'm not sure exactly what they are or how they go together. <laughs> Let me remind everybody, Elliot Lurie is our guest from the band uh, Looking Glass, and uh, we're talking about everything to do with him. You can uh, check out more information at elliot-lurie.com. So you guys are on fire, and it, and you know, you're know you touring, and you've sold a million records. You had a literal number one record. It's pretty, you know, it's a lot. Uh, and then I, ex- I assume expectations to make the second album were were huge. Is that is that right? When did you feel that pressure? Well, we were tremendously excited to do the second album because Clive hooked us up with Arif Martin as a producer. You know, Arif uh, was basically uh, an, a producer for Atlantic Records. Right. Uh, but Clive got him to, to take us on, and we had a wonderful experience recording that album. We recorded it at the old Atlantic Studios on, uh, on 60th off of Broadway, and Arif was just a fantastic guy to work with, a, a wonderful gentleman, a super talented record producer, of course. And uh, we, were, we were thrilled to do that, and uh, recording it album was, was a really great experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I've got, uh, I can't think of any bad stories about Arif Martin. Everybody seems to have loved him and loved working with him, and real musical uh, guy. So out of that record comes Jimmy Loves Marianne, uh, comes out in 1973, reaches number 33, and I think it's as good a song as Brandy. You must have been just a, a, a little disappointed you didn't have a number, another number one, right? We were disappointed because I really liked that record. I still like listening to that record. And it's wonderfully uh, produced by, by Arif. Uh, he wrote a beautiful horn chart for it. Um, and I still enjoy listening to the record. Matter of fact, if you are the kind of person who likes to put vinyl on a, a good stereo, uh, that, that track still sounds, uh, sounds great. It was very, very well produced and well recorded. Uh, and I thought the band was getting tight. We played it, we played it quite well. Um, you know, why it wasn't bigger at the time, the label told us it was what was called a turntable hit. It got a lot of airplay, but it didn't sell through. Mm. And why that was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, uh, and the band continues for about a year or so. And then I believe you leave. Am I, am I right? The band continued without you for a while? Yeah, I left because at that point, uh, it really became clear that the what the public identified as the sound of looking glass was the sound of my vocal and my writing. And, you know, the eclecticism of the albums, uh, it was tough when we went out in person because first of all, we were just a four piece. We didn't have a one section of background singers with us. Uh, we didn't have all the overdubs and half the set was, you know, hard rocking stuff that the people who wanted to hear Brandy 
that really wasn't what they came to hear. Uh, so I went out on my own. The band did continue for a bit. They uh, brought in two players, uh, put out a couple of records, one of which I think actually did okay. Uh, and then uh, the members of the band went on to become Stars, which was sort of a hard rock, uh, glam rock band. Uh, they were managed by the same guys who managed Kiss. And you went on to make a solo record produced by David Kirshenbaum, came out in 1975. Tell me about working with David Kirshenbaum. And, you know, I had never heard that record, and I sought it out. And either the first or second song is called Disco, Where You Want to Go. It's 1975. And I'm listening to it, and at first I was like, what is this? And then your voice sort of comes in, and then just what you just said. It's like, oh, yeah, there's Elliot's voice. This is like... It's you, you know what I mean? Once your voice is so unique, and it was very. So tell me about working with David Kirshenbaum and uh, what your expectations were. And this is, of course, 1975, a time where, where there's a lot, still a lot of pop music, but there's a lot of things changing and about to change in the music industry. You know, I was uh, again Clive and uh, and my uh, my A and R man uh, Steve Paley uh, thought it would be a good idea to come out to L.A and uh, record with David as the producer. And, uh, you know, we used the cream of the crop of uh, L.A. studio musicians. I think, you know, half the band was Toto and the other half of the band were the Jazz Crusaders. Uh, if you look at the credits on that album, you know, Luther Vandross is singing background. <laughs> I mean, I was, I was, I was, uh, I was starstruck because I'm a little bit of a... Uh, I'm, I'm a little bit of a session player groupie to begin with. I really admire those guys. Uh, so in that respect, it was fun. Uh, but to tell you the truth, there are only a few tracks on that album that I can uh, still listen to uh, comfortably. The rest of it uh, did not wear well, I don't think. The next time you sort of turn up on the radar is almost 10 years later, 1984, when you sort of have this very successful second career as a music supervisor, mostly 20th Century Fox, and a lot of huge projects, movies, and TV shows that folks would have heard of, you know, Home Alone and Die Hard and Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Alien and et cetera, et cetera, a huge list. Uh, But that kind of leaves about 10 years where I have no idea what happened. What were you doing uh, in between those two times? I was reaching and searching. I was trying to figure out what to do with my life, Uh, like... You know, by the, by the time the solo album had come and gone rather quickly, uh, you know, at that point, I was starting to push 30. It's been a while since I'd had a hit. Uh, I wanted to make a living somehow. And I was a little frustrated with my lifestyle in New York. So I, uh, I moved out to L.A. and got very fortunate. A good friend of mine introduced me to an agent, and one thing led to another. And I became a music supervisor working for uh, a woman named Becky Shargo. Uh, and she had her own company doing independent music supervision. And I kind of learned the business from her. And then about a year later, uh, I was interviewed to take the uh, job of the executive in charge of music for Fox and also for Universal at the same time. And I chose Fox and was there for 10 years. Uh, so you'd had a number one hit record. I mean, it doesn't get any higher than that. And I assume like those 10 years, I mean, maybe not, but I assume it was tough just to not to be to, you know, to not be number one. Well, it's not so much that it was tough not to be number one. I mean, you know, I, I, I think that I realized that, you know, having a number one record right out of the box like that, especially a million seller like that. You know, that, that that just doesn't happen all the time in the music business. And especially by the time that the group broke up, 
I realized, okay, so this is, you know, this is not going to be, uh, you know, this is not going to be the Eagles or the Beatles. This is, you know, this is going to be, what am I going to do with this career? And the solo album, you know, didn't have any commercial success. And at that point, you know, I was being realistic about it. I was almost 30. It seemed like a long shot for me to, to, uh, to succeed uh, as an artist at that point. Uh, so I looked for a change of scene, came out to LA and got very lucky because I got to stay involved in music and learned a whole lot about a business that I didn't know about before the movie and television business. Yeah. Uh, right around that same time, Josie Cotton covers Jimmy Loves Mary in 1984. I love her version of it. I mean, I love both versions. It's fantastic. She, she, you know, she stays true to the song, but she kind of adds a little umph to it. And it's not so 80s. 80 eyes that it's ruined but uh do you remember first time you heard her version the first time i heard it i saw that it was cracking the billboard charts and i didn't even know that it existed <laughs> uh so I, so obviously i went and searched it out and i liked it quite a lot i really liked it a lot yeah it's great you know i think you've been sort of performing on and off but it seems like lately last few years that you are sort of putting a little more energy into this how is that going it's going great. What what happened was, I would say it's probably about seven or eight years ago now. I kind of got a little bit tired of the music supervision business. The business had changed quite a bit. You know, we used to be able to do big soundtrack albums, and some of them were just compilations of uh, pre-existing songs. And uh, obviously, with the advent of iTunes and you know buying songs by the track, those kinds of albums didn't work as much. A lot of younger people coming into music supervision, good, smart, hip people, and I was getting a little older. So I decided to give that up for a while. And I got approached by a band out of Atlanta called Yacht Rock Review. Are you familiar with them? I, I've seen the YouTubes of it, yes. Yeah, okay. So Yacht Rock Review was a band of younger guys in their 30s uh, who came up with this approach to a certain niche of music, which is called Yacht Rock. And I think it originated on a kind of YouTube comedy uh, series that, that, that called that kind of music Yacht Rock. They were the first ones to do it. But basically, it's like a subgenre of music that is this very slick pop music. Uh, a lot of it's kind of blue-eyed soul, uh, like it includes Toto. It includes Hall & Oates. It includes Michael McDonald. That's kind of the sound of it. And these guys, Yacht Rock Review, became so popular doing this kind of stuff. And they're great musicians. That they called some of the original voices to join them at some of their shows. The first one I did with them, I, Peter Beckett of Player was there. I think we did do a couple with Bobby Kimball of Toto, the original singer from Toto. It kind of a changing cast. They would call different people in. I really enjoyed it. They're a great band, great bunch of guys. I started doing a number of shows with them and really enjoyed it. So I, I work with them a lot. Um, sometimes I'll use a, a pickup band, uh, you know, that I'll get a chance to rehearse with before a show, but it's not with Yacht Rock. Uh, I do some shows with uh, Peter Beckett and Player live here in L.A., so sometimes we do some things together and his band backs me up. So uh, I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, it's, I, I'm not sure. I still am not sure I understand what Yacht Rock is or if I approve of it. But I will, but I will say that they do a great they, – they recreate the sound of Looking Glass very well, and, and, they, and they back you up. And one of the great things for you is that your voice was always very deep, so getting older, you still sound like you. It's, you know, that's, it's not like you have to hit the high notes anymore. You know, it was always a, kind of a deep thing. This, the song Brandy has been covered 
many, many times. Like we said, it's been in lots of movies and TV shows, including Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, which is a huge – it has a huge uh, part of, of that, that movie. And it's a staple of oldies radio uh, like I said before, it's one of those songs that every demographic likes. Not to get too deep into your business, but like being the writer of Brandy, can you give me an indication of how financially awesome that is? I mean, is it like a is it a new car every year, a new house every year, a new a good vacation, a dinner out? I mean, you know what what level are we talking about? I think the I'm asked that quite a bit. And I, I think the the most honest thing I can say is that over the years, uh, it has made the hard times easier and the good times better. Um, I don't know. You know. I've been asked before, well, can you retire on one song? Well, it depends. Did you write both the words and lyrics? Do you own the publishing? Uh, you know, is it a record that was number one 40 years ago and it's been forgotten about or does it get you know, do still get played a lot. So, so, uh, so it, it depends on a lot of factors. It's, but uh, as I say, it's uh, it's certainly a good thing to have, and it made the hard times easier and good times better. Yeah, well, good for you. I mean, it it is one of those songs that is just it's never stopped being played on the radio, and that's not that's not bad. You know, <laughs> it's not bad for you, and it's such a trademark. You know, your vocal delivery is such a trademark uh, thing. I assume you don't get sick of something that brings you that much that much feedback from people who love it. Yeah, you know, listen, when, when I, one of the things I enjoy about going out and playing is, uh, you know, when I get the reaction on on, on uh, Facebook, I have a Facebook artist page if, if anyone's interested. And I do stay in contact with uh, with all the fans who, uh, who go to that page. I try to. And it's just amazing to me, you know, the, the impact that the song has had on some people's lives. And as you say, with the Guardians movie, the thing that was most interesting about that is that introduced a whole new audience to the song. So, you know, where it used to be people in their 60s who, who remembered it from back in the day, you know, now there's a whole new younger audience that was introduced to it through that movie, and that's a great thing. So did you, I mean, just did you guys have a good deal? I mean, were you one of those bands who signed the wrong piece of paper? But it sounds like you, you did not, and that you got a, a pretty good deal. We didn't have a great deal. We had a typical deal that you would get back then. I mean, we weren't entirely ripped off like some of the horror stories that you hear. But we had a typical we had a typical early seventies kind of deal. All right, fair enough. Well, we're going to play Brandy. I I never get sick of the song. I'm glad you never get sick of this song. Folks can say hello to you over at Facebook, which is how I found you, or Elliot-Lurie.com, L-U-R-I-E, uh, for information about gigs and merch and stuff like that. And uh, it's such a you know, interesting band. Uh, the records are certainly worth uh, searching out uh, more than just, just the hits, but uh, the hits will live longer than either of us, that's for sure. One thing I just wanted to add, Michael, before we... Uh before we uh, we go, uh, you know, when you call me, I remember WFMU finally from when I lived in uh, in New York and in New Jersey. In fact, I believe that WFMU is one of the few stations that did play a track or two from my solo album. So I've always felt grateful for that. Oh, that's you know, we still have a huge uh, vinyl library, and I didn't even think of looking. I will check the L section. Uh... <laughs> As soon as the show's over and see if we have a copy uh, in there. It is available digitally, though, for folks who want to check it out. Uh, well, thanks for taking your time and to, to visit with us, and I'm glad you're an old uh, FMU listener. I am, and thanks, Michael. It was fun.
Say, brand new. You're a fine girl. You're a fine girl. 